Welcome back to another episode of our brand new podcast, City Hall Pass, hosted by myself, the counsel to the mayor, Kapel Longani. We created this forum, the first of its kind in New York City, to provide you, the general public, with a unique window into the problem-solving process at the highest levels of our city government, and to be able to share insights into key decisions as told by the trailblazing leaders who made them. And now I want to introduce my two hosts today, two women who are truly brilliant and inspire me every day, Bess Chu and Kate Coughlin. Thanks, Capel. Happy to be here. This is Bess Chu. I'm currently Chief of Staff to the Office of the Council to the Mayor. Hi, I'm Kate Coughlin, and I currently serve as Deputy Counsel for the Office of the Council to the Mayor. Our guest today is a dear personal friend of mine. He is the Deputy Commissioner for Legal Affairs at the New York City Police Department, Ernie Hart. For those of you that know Ernie Hart, you know that he's a gregarious human being, a kind human being, a gentle human being, but incredibly smart. He's had a decorated career as a public servant. He served as chair of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, as well as, as we now know, the Deputy Commissioner for Legal Affairs at the NYPD. Just an extraordinary dichotomy, especially as we sit here now in an era of police reform, to talk to a man who was once chair of the main civilian oversight entity for NYPD, but is now the top legal official at NYPD prior to serving on the CCRB, which is of course the acronym for the Civilian Complaint Review Board. He was elected as a state Supreme Court justice, and he also served as an assistant district attorney. He also served as an associate dean and chief operating officer at Columbia University Medical Center and has continued to teach criminal justice as an adjunct professor at Queensborough Community College. Ernie's lifetime of public service provided this episode with no shortage of special moments. From his work as a state Supreme Court judge, where he inherited the seat of his late brother, the Honorable Dwayne Hart, to his time as a child visiting his dad's pharmacy in Harlem, and ultimately to his work today as Deputy Commissioner for Legal Affairs at the NYPD. Ernie's approached his life with a certain level of fairness, decency, and respect for his fellow New Yorkers that I think is rare. And I think when you hear him talk, I don't think you're going to find a more authentic interview. City Hall Pass is all about bringing you unique insights into policymakers and people that make decisions that affect eight and a half million New Yorkers. And I think for this episode, we've succeeded. And with that, I hope you really enjoy listening to my dear friend, Ernie Hart. So welcome back to City Hall Pass. I want to welcome our next guest. Ernie, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Is it true that you're the only person that has held both the position of CCRB chair as well as deputy commissioner for legal affairs at NYPD? I think that is uh, correct. I think I was also the first African-American chair, if I remember correctly. Certainly one of the rare persons of color to have taken on that role, at least when you did in 2009. Tell us about what that meant to you personally and what you think it meant to the institution. Well, at the time I was chair, I was supposed to be named, honestly, as just a member. And it was a time of turmoil internally at the board. And so all of a sudden the mayor said, oh, this is Mayor Bloomberg, oh, you're going to be named the chair, which is a big difference between being the chair and being a member. Uh, you have a bit more responsibility. But I've always thought, I always recognize the importance of the CCRB. 
as it would happen, my uncle, who was a first grade detective, who was on John Lindsay's detail when he was mayor, he ended his career as a police officer with CCRB. Because at the time, if you remember, up until, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, CCRB was part of the police department. And so the feeling was that the CCRB was not as independent as it should be. So it was separated into its own agency. Being chair, obviously extremely important because it gives the public the ability to redress its some of its uh, complaints, some of its concerns about the way they're being treated by the police. So me being chair of CCRB was an important event in my life because I was able to use what I think is my sense of fairness, my sense of civic responsibility in an extraordinary way. Did your impression of the NYPD change over the course of your three years as chair of CCRB? I don't know if it changed. Obviously, I you know, had served as a Manhattan district attorney, assistant district attorney in the past, so I had a lot of dealings with cops in the past. But you realize that the need for CCRB was valid. You know, every incident has its own circumstances. What is the CCRB supposed to do? It's supposed to address things like discourteous conduct, use of force. I mean, you know, people have a right to have those issues addressed. We give police officers a lot of authority, and they, they have to be answerable to it which kind of led me to when I was asked to become deputy commissioner for legal matters, that was in my thinking. You know, what what can I do? Having served as chair of CCRB, having served as a judge, how can I benefit the police department as it presently was? What could be my contribution? And that's frankly what Commissioner O'Neill focused on. You know, what could I do to contribute? What can I do to make the police department better? What could I do to make it more transparent in terms of its dealings with the public, with the press, with the government, you know, internal investigations, uh, not only CCRB, but the attorney general with all those things I talked about with Commissioner O'Neill before I was appointed. I mean, these were his concerns. He wanted the police department to be a bit more transparent in in the way it deals with all these uh, various interests, as well as Commissioner Shea. He certainly has reinforced force and actually went beyond the conversations that I had with Commissioner O'Neill in order to improve the transparency that, that now exists. It's unimaginable to me, as we sit here today, that any CCRB chair would be accepted, assuming that CCRB chair is a lawyer. Unimaginable to me that person could be accepted or even seriously considered for your position. Were you surprised when Commissioner O'Neill called you and interviewed you for this job? My reputation is basically one of fairness. When I was a judge, I had the respect of both. I was a judge in Queens for six and a half years in criminal court and as a justice of the Supreme Court in civil term. And so I didn't think it was a surprise. And I I don't get excited about much, but (laughs) I do think that looking at my experiences, which you indicated in the beginning was unique. I think my worth to the police department was uh, valid. I'm not trying to be modest, but I'm just saying just based on my experience, not only at my professional experience, but growing up as a black kid in Southeast Queens and all those experiences, that's a very important. So when we talk about experiences, it's life's experiences, not only professional experiences. Family has always been a big part of your life, Ernie, and I want to touch on that in a moment. But I I want to drill down a little bit on when Jimmy O'Neill spoke to you initially about this job. Take us through your thoughts. When Jimmy O'Neill calls you, offers you the job, what are you thinking and why do you end up taking that job? What am I thinking? I'm thinking, why am I giving up a position on the Supreme Court, which 
and I guess we can get into this later, you know, was very important to me because it was my brother's seat, my brother who had died uh, a few months before I was elected. Actually, I got elected to his seat. Why am I giving that up? And I tell you this, the reason why I thought that I should leave the court is because I think I could make a valuable contribution to the governance of the city. Policing and communities of color has been an issue certainly all my life and beyond. And I think because of the experience that I bring to it, both personal and professional, I thought I could be really effective. The role that Commissioner O'Neill wanted me to play was to bring a different perspective from what was then in the police department. Nobody had the experience that I had, and he thought that it would be an excellent choice. Now that you've been in this role for about a year and a half, how has it affected your personal life and the people who you deal with within your own community, with other people of color, with your kids and your family generally? That's a, that's a big question. This job has, when it first happened, everybody's happy, uh, you know, good job. My judicial colleagues, some of uh, the lawyers uh, that I know, some of them who appeared before me said, oh, congratulations on the promotion. I said, I don't see this as a promotion from going from Supreme Court to the police department, but I understand the sentiment. The sentiment is that I went from a justice of the Supreme Court to the DCLM, the Deputy Commissioner for Legal Matters. And to the extent that I'm going to have an impact, I have a much greater chance of having impact in that role at, at the police department than I do as a Supreme Court justice. One of the critical times, we just went through all these protests and everything uh, after the death of Mr. Floyd. And that was the first time I probably had these kind of political discussions about race and, and gender and so many other things with my youngest daughter, who she's 20 years old now. Her as a young black woman experiencing things that wouldn't necessarily come to mind and seeing what was going on, we had some profound conversations. And I must tell you that it's not so much we were disagreeing on things, but to see her perspective, I think gave me a better perspective as to how I should approach my role in the department. It was very enlightening to me, I must say. All of my kids, I have three kids, um, we all had very real conversations. And I think while we might have had them before, but because of my role in the police department, I think that they were that much more interesting and profound to get their perspective. I'll tell you, I think in our many conversations that we have, both at work and outside of work, you often talk about your family and how important they are to you and how they have molded who you are today. Your mom, I was very surprised, first of all, to learn that she was in her 90s because she's sharp as a tack. She is. And in every way. Let's, let's talk about your mom a little bit. The things you've learned from your mother, the things that your mother taught you, and just maybe, frankly, DNA. Well, I got to tell you, I don't generally talk about my mother in isolation from my father. Me and my siblings had a great childhood. Both of my parents gave us everything that we could have wanted, not only in terms of material stuff, but education. All of us, my older sister, she's a physician. My older brother, who's I mentioned before, who was a judge. I was a judge, you know, and I had this position now, and, and my younger brother's a lawyer. My father graduated in college in 1949. You know, somebody who is black graduated from college in 1949. That's a big deal. Very, always very proud of my father. He was a pharmacist in Harlem all of his professional life. Even when he sold his business, he worked in Harlem Hospital because he was from Harlem, he grew up in Harlem, and he was just comfortable in Harlem. Because my father worked so hard seven days a week, and just being with him, seeing how he interacted with people, seeing 
how the community respected him, seeing how the community would come to him for advice. It's just so many things that, you know, my father taught us. And my mother, who was a teacher who just retired, yeah, she retired as a licensed teacher at the age of 93. My mother was the rock. When it comes to education, you know, it wasn't like, uh, are you going to college? It's a, where, where are you going? My mother was and still is a rock. She remembers everything. I mean, it's amazing. She doesn't forget anything. You mentioned that your father had a drugstore and that you would spend time, I guess, afternoons after school there, you know, seeing him talk to people and in some ways, like in his own way, mentor them and really serve as a, what it sounds like a role model and as a guide within the community. Do you remember any kind of particular lessons you learned from being in that drugstore with him and seeing his interactions with people in the community? Well, certainly the lesson that I learned from my father is that I'm no better than anybody else. We had opportunities that others didn't have, and we have a responsibility to help others who may not be able to help help themselves as much as they would want or could. And, you know, that came to light. I was on a retreat. We were sitting in a, in a room, a uh, big room. It was basically all men of color, um, not completely, but basically all black and Latino men. And the facilitator was asking a question that I found pretty profound at the time. And that was, how many of you have been arrested and how many of you have been in handcuffs? Almost all of the men there said one or the other. I mean, it was just, you know, and why is that significant? That is significant because if you are arrested, that may have not only that experience of being arrested, but also you have that arrest in your background. So if you ever want to be a cop or anything like that, but also, you know, what were the circumstances of the arrest? I'm not saying that people were wrongly arrested. I'm saying what were the circumstances, but when you were in handcuffs, when you're not arrested, you know, what kind of relationship is that going to give you with the police? We'll be right back with more from our conversation with Ernie Hart. But I want to take a second to remind our listeners to get tested for COVID-19. And remember, tests are free and confidential. Text COVID-TEST to 85548 or visit nyc.gov slash COVID-TEST to find a convenient site near you. I also want to remind our listeners that there's a new COVID-19 hotline. Call for free advice from medical staff, quarantine guidance, emergency food, hotel rooms, mental health counseling, travel guidance, and more. Call 212-COVID-19 from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., seven days a week. Back to you, Kate. Ernie, you mentioned your father was an influential member of your community and owned a pharmacy. Can you speak a little more about him? I was talking to a person who I didn't know, somebody who worked for the organization that I'm chair of, and we started talking about where he was from. He said he was grew up in Harlem. And I said, oh, yeah, my father had a drugstore on 142nd and Amsterdam. He said, what's that, Hart's Pharmacy? I said, Hart's Pharmacy? Your father is, is Mr. Hart? I said, he was, he was such a great man. He would counsel me. He would give me uh, money to make deliveries. He would encourage me to take a steady path. And he always, and this is a trademark of my father, he used to give these little star mints. My mother still has a star mint, you know, still uses a star mint. Little star mints too, you know, as a, and that was his little thing, you know, that, you know, I have, I spoke to you, I have my little imprint on you, whatever it was. But that was his thing, these little star mints. But I got to tell you, so... I was so greatly moved that my father, I had no idea who this guy was. My father had such an impact on that young man. I mean, that young man is now, I don't know, he was in his 30s or 40s, uh, however old he was. The drugstore was a family type of business. My mother would go occasionally, particularly, he had another drugstore on Madison Avenue. But we spent a lot of time 
because my father worked so hard. This is before, you know, the CVSs of the world and all these big entities. So the neighborhood pharmacy was an important part of the community, particularly of the black community, because, you know, healthcare wasn't uh, as available as it should have been. So where do you go? You go to the local pharmacy, you ask the pharmacist, you know, what do I take? I'm, you know, I'm feeling not good. What do you take? So he was an important part uh, of the community. And all of us, as I said before, my siblings, all of my siblings, I've carried that. I've given that to my children as well. You know, that sense of community, that sense of responsibility, very important, very important to me. We've talked a couple of times during our discussion about your position as a Supreme Court judge. Why did you take that position? I was a judge. Uh, I was a criminal court judge. Mayor Bloomberg appointed me to the criminal court. You know, when you're a criminal court judge, that's the lower court in New York City, certainly. And of course, the next step in that is Supreme Court. So I was, and it's a political, it's an elected position. A criminal court is appointed, Supreme Court is elected. And then my brother died. My brother died in April of 2016. And the Democratic Party, they nominated me to my brother's seat, which I remember in the way it's done to a nominating convention. And I remember how just overcome with emotion I was because I didn't get emotional now, but the way it works is the last person who held the seat you know, you are mentioned as the person who's taking that seat or is nominated for that seat. So forever, I will follow my brother in that seat. He loved, I mean, he would never do what I did. I think he would approve with me leaving the, the bench, but he loved being a judge. So it was so emotionally gratifying to me that I was able to follow my brother in that seat. Um, so switching topics a little bit, Bloomberg appointed you chair of CCRB. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, we're here under Mayor de Blasio's administration, but what was Mayor Bloomberg's administration like? So I was there from the beginning. I think I started in February of that, you know, when the mayor took office. And this whole concept of the bullpen, that was a new concept. And I see you have remnants of it now. All the deputy mayors and all the chiefs of staff all sat there with various other staff members around and, you know, the mayor did that to uh, imitate a trading floor where, you know, where he made his mark on the world. I remember the type of people that came to see this bullpen, whether it was Kofi Annan, who was secretary general of the United Nations or Texas governor, uh, Governor Richards. I remember athletes and, you know, senator of this and ambassador of that. It was a very fascinating time to be there. Uh, the mayor himself, very funny, very dry wit. I know that... A lot of times on a Friday, I may have been one of the last people to leave, whatever. And he would say, uh, Ernie, I'm leaving. You're in charge. Don't, you know, F it up. Okay, okay, Mayor, I got you. Because one of the things that, you know, was legendary was the food that was available in the bullpen. At one point, the mayor would make popcorn, like one of those old machines. You had the uh, fresh salads and the, the, the candy and the granola bars and the refrigerator filled with drinks. And you didn't have to leave. The issues that you confront in your role with the police department, particularly in this day and age, they are unique, complex, and challenging in a way that very few other roles are. Because your job is not just to give legal advice to the commissioner. Every time you speak, you have really two hats, a legal hat and a policy hat. Can you talk a little bit about that role as DCLM? Well... I think that the role of DCLM in the police department is integral to the way the police department works, whether it's, uh, you know, the various units that report to uh, the police department. But as an individual, the role of counsel to the police department is unique to the person who has it. And, you know, you have to develop a relationship with 
the police commissioner and the top executives. And I think I have a very good relationship with all of them. I was appointed by Commissioner O'Neill. I think I've established an excellent relationship with Commissioner Shea. I'm very honest with him as I was with Commissioner O'Neill, very honest. And I'm sure he'll tell you that. My counsel to him is my counsel to him. I mean, I serve as not his counsel, but as the police department's counsel. But, you know, my role is to represent the interests of the police department, of which he is the chief executive. So I think the role of DCLM is critical to how the department works, whether it's legislative, whether it's a criminal. One of the things that we do in the police department is not only train, but to go out in the field with police officers in demonstrations or parades or something to help navigate the different situations, whether or not there's probable cause, that type of thing. Now we're starting to, I just started a unit on dealing with within the criminal section of my office to help detectives make better cases and have relationships with the various DAs, but not just like dump a case to the DA, but have relationships develop with the various DAs in the city to make cases uh, that much better. When I took this job, one of the things the mayor asked me when I was interviewing for this job was why I should get this job. Why should he pick me? And I said, because I don't need this job. You need somebody who doesn't need the job, who will be willing to speak their mind. And I think for a lawyer, and, and for those of you who are not lawyers out there, for a lawyer, the greatest accomplishment one can have vis-a-vis their client is to get their client's trust. And I think in your position, Ernie, it is truly a tough thing to achieve when you are not an operational person. You are the law in many respects. It's very hard to cross that bridge from being a lawyer to being a confidant and a trustworthy voice in the room where people don't look at you as a lawyer, but they look at you as a person of reason, a person who has good advice, logical advice, and what they're saying makes sense, both in the context of the law and reality. Do you have any thoughts on that? Listen, I am not a police officer. I came from without. As you know, the police department is a paramilitary organization. People move up through the ranks. So when you have an outsider like me coming in with a different perspective, sometimes it is a difficult transition. I used to I used to joke with one of the one of the chiefs and I go, you know, oh man, we were agreeing on something because, you know, there's a lot of, of give and take with uh, a lot of the policies that go on. I come from a totally different perspective. And I think that the commissioners that I've served with, the, the executives that I've served with uh, would agree that I'm um, certainly not shy. I definitely give you know, the best opinion I can. I'm in a, in, in a unique position, very much so, which is one of the things that attracted me to the job. One of the issues that you've had to deal with since you've arrived here is the prevalence of body-worn cameras. And when you were at CCRB, you didn't really have to deal with body-worn cameras. Can you talk a little bit about how body-worn cameras have changed policing and do you think it has been for the better? One of the units in legal is body-worn cameras. There are approximately 125, 135,000 uploads of body-worn camera footage a week in the police department, a week. So obviously that is not only relevant to discovery in terms of the prosecutors, but also FOIL, which is also a part of the police department, and also CCRB's role in terms of investigating misconduct by members of the service. I think it has been very useful to policing. I think that it's a good thing to have. It's also good for the public to see what goes on. I mean, we, you know, we talk about police work in the abstract, you know, we could describe uh, something that happened, but when you actually see in real time, 
you know, an incident. It gives the public, it gives them a better sense of what police officers are faced with every day. I, so I think body-worn cameras is a, is a boon to, uh, to policing. If you could walk into Hart's Pharmacy today and your dad was behind the counter, in this time of uncertainty and tribulation, COVID, et cetera, what advice do you think he would give you? Wow, that's a good question. That's uh, keep on doing what you're doing, son. Well, that was a fascinating conversation with my dear friend, Ernie Hart. We're really grateful for Ernie's time and willingness to open up about his life in public service. And I'm really grateful to all of you for taking time to listen. We really hope you enjoyed this conversation and look forward to you joining us for another episode of City Hall Pass. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by the Office of the Council to the Mayor of New York City. 